Come on. Math. produced by three winners of IMSA's Spirit of the Race Award. Thank you for tuning in to the Check Engine Podcast. We're streaming through Anchor.fm or anywhere else that streams cool, fun, um, interesting podcasts that you all want to listen to. Um, My name is Nick. I've got my two usual comrades here with me, Andrew and Tristan. But this episode, we have a very special guest with us. Um, We're excited to welcome from Twitter, the one and only Artisan Loaf is here joining us via Skype. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. Thank you very much for having me. And I'm uh, pleased to announce that, you know, I got here just on the ground floor. You know, I have written correspondence (laughs) that says that I knew about this podcast before you become the biggest automotive podcast in the world. So (laughs) glad to be here. We just closed <laughs> we, that last week. We had to do it. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we appreciate your confidence in us. Yeah. <laughs> that that one episode that, that peaked us up there for one day, and we're already getting big heads. So <laughs> uh, yeah. we appreciate you jumping on. Um, we've got a lot of things um, to, to talk with you about tonight. Um, Andrew, I think, is going to be the one that wants to kick this thing off, though, so... Um, Andrew, whenever you're ready to jump into this. Yeah, for sure. Uh, now I loaf, I first heard about your content, either it was, um, through Hoonable or I think it might've been Camo who were uh, Camille who works at Hooniverse, uh, okay. retweeted your, Ooh, your stock market, total adjusted camera index. And I have been obsessed with it ever since <laughs> it's completely mystifying to me. And it seems to be like, <laughs> It seems like some kind of fever dream work in a way. It's it's so it seems so accurate, and I just that's where I want to start, man. I need to know about the camera adjusted index. <laughs> okay, All right, yeah. It's a, it started off as like um, you know when we talk about anything, but like especially cars, when we look you know looking at historic stuff, like so what like thirty years ago, you see you know a BMW M5 cost X amount. But it's not really that helpful when you can't think about, you know, what were other cars at the same time? What was the the general sort of, you know, economy doing? So I came up with the idea that, well, how many Camrys could you buy for this as a way of just it's a really just a, a real shorthand of, you know, how, how much is something worth in a relatable context for people that, you know, into cars. Sure. The Camry is a really good like benchmark, especially in the U S for like the last you know, 30 plus years. It's, it's stayed in the same part of the market. The sales have been very consistent. So then it's like, yeah, everyone knows what a Camry is, even though like in hindsight, I was like, well, maybe I should have done a Corolla because the Corolla <laughs> is available everywhere else in the world as well, whereas the Camry, not so much. It's only just been reintroduced into the UK this year. Sure. After like 15, 16 years of it not being available. So I was like, oh, that's, you know, that's, uh, that was kind of the idea. And I was originally going to make like a calculator where you could put in a price, you know, a price of something in what year and it would convert it into camera units. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, oh so, so the camera, so in this instance, like the Camry is almost like the dollar 
to yes. measure up against. It's like an exchange okay. rate type. Effectively, yeah, it's Universal a way of type. yeah, it's it's a way of like inflation is an imperfect measurement. So you know when you see you know the Federal Reserve or whatever come out saying inflation's at like one point five percent for the year when your grocery bill is up five percent, you know you 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 can see that the, the what official reported inflation is not necessarily representative of what you feel in your pocket. And I just thought, oh, well, this will be a fun way to have a new measure. Of it in, a, in the most geeky way possible, I guess, to f- a, a, a thing that you can do that's fun. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, <laughs> I absolutely love it. So we have we have um, the you did it for the for the Dow Jones Industrial and also for well, I mean, every world market basically yeah, at some point I, got involved. Yeah. So lo- last night I also did your suggestion and had a look at the expedition as well. I wasn't going to do it because it takes it takes takes time to put this stuff together. Um. But I was like, I curiosity got the better of me when I started looking at the, you know, the stats about the expedition. So I was like, okay, I was going to do it. So I can send that to you at some point. I don't know if I can send it to you right now. Oh, that's all right. Yeah, anytime. I'd love to see that. I mean, that whole expedition example came about from Ford's shareholder meeting in uh, what was that March? I believe they had a had a pretty little pie chart that showed you know the expedition gained about five percent from 17 to 18 they were estimating where they got that five percent gain in that market you know some mm-hmm. from gm and chevy but just looking at that i thought all right so five percent is about fourteen thousand more expeditions yeah but even with that gain and and ford selling over that same period 44 thousand fewer focuses focuses still outsold expeditions 10 to 1 so uh, the, one of the biggest things and, and you know the one of the biggest things for me is um, kind of jumping ahead here but it's like the myth of per transaction prices right yeah okay um you're right on that and the bit that i say the bit that really got me intrigued was the price of the expedition has since it was launched to today, the the the, the base um, sticker price is up seventy five percent. Whoa! From, from what it really? Was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I say that, but I guess I don't know how that compares to other vehicles in that same well, time frame. But the, well, this is the, this is where the sort of the comparison stuff comes in because what I did, well, I'll go through the the the. The primary chart. For, I'm, gonna try, I'm gonna try and make this as concise as possible. <laughs> sure. sure. Um, what I did with that, the normalized chart that you see, that's full of every index. So what I did was I sh- I took and assumed them the what the base price was. I think it starts in 2006. This chart, mm-hmm. or the base price of a Camry was in 2006 in US dollars. I converted that into the relative local currency. So it's in the euro, it's in the pound, it's in the Australian dollar, it's in the Japanese yen. And then I said, okay, if you take the value of a Camry and put that in the stock market, what would it have done over the last X many years? And that's what, the, and then the chart shows you how many Camrys you could buy today based on your initial investment of a Camry. Right, right. So where you can see that the, if you put, you know, one Camry's worth of money into the Dow Jones, you would be very close to getting two Camrys at this point. Right, Whereas if you put the if you put the same amount of money in say euros into the euro stock market, you would actually only be able to afford uh, afford about sixty seventy percent of a Camry now. 
even though, like the like, I used the example of uh, the UK market. I did. I said the the numbers that I've used are you know they're rounded. They're not necessarily accurate, but it is illustrative. To you know, it's I'm not I'm not going to say this is a hundred percent perfect data. It's not. It's just illustrative. Um, if you say you. Uh, I'm reading my notes just to make sure I get this right. Sure. If you invested a Camry's worth of money into the UK stock market in 2006, you would only have 70% of a Camry today. Even though the market has gone up 25% in that time, the difference in the price of the Camry and the devaluation of the pound completely wipes out and essentially you lose money over that time, even though... Theoretically, you're up 25%, but the value of the currency that the stock market's based in has gone down. So it's a way of actually comparing the, 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 the normalized chart is a way of comparing uh, stock market performance over time all on the same in the same context. Right. So that's how you, okay. how you can see okay. what's, what's better and what's worse. So does that make sense? Yes, it does. It makes a lot of sense. Okay. <laughs> so what I did then as well with when you said about the expedition, I did the same thing. So what is say if using the Camry as the example, I can't I sorry, I can't do that because I haven't got the diff the dates are different. Yeah. But if you'd put one camp one expedition worth of money into the stock market in nineteen ninety seven, the the first year of the expedition you would now be able to buy almost two. So very similar to the, to the Camry. It is, over, yeah. but, that's, but, but that's over a very, that's over like an extra 10 years. Oh, right. Of course. So yeah. Instead of 2006, it's 1997. Yeah. But if you'd have put that, what I did then beyond it, which is why I was up till stupid o'clock last night, trying to figure <laughs> out in a very tired state, how to do this, how to get my maths right on this. Um, if you'd have put, um, that if you'd have put that same amount of uh, money into, you could have at the time when in 1997, you could have bought about 1.7 Camrys for the amount of uh, expeditions around the same time. Right. But if you'd have put that money into the stock market in 1997, instead of buying 1.7 Camrys, you could now buy 4.5 Camrys. Oh. Because wow. the difference, the difference in price of the Camry over time. Is much less. It's like it's up forty percent, something thirty-five percent, forty percent over the same period, as what the expedition say has gone up seventy-five percent. So <laughs> you could buy a lot more Camrys today with your money than you could buy expeditions. De definitely. I mean, I feel like I feel like this is all leading to some huge climax, but maybe it's not. Like some decisive moment where we now know. Uh, <laughs> it's definitely. Uh, it's definitely not. I don't want to disappoint, but it's definitely. It was like it just started off as a fun thing to do, and then I was like, the more I started doing it, the more I was like, well, I wonder if I, you know, included this and did that and compared it to that. It's just. It's just a different way of looking at inflation, essentially. Yeah, yeah, it's so, great. I I absolutely love it. Yeah, it's the you know you're not going to draw anything anything statistically meaningful, although it does look like it in some in some cases of how like <laughs> the stock market goes down, but it balances out. You know, 1.5 Camrys is pretty strong. You know, you, the market's pretty supportive at that level, but it you know it is just a an experiment with with data to see you know what it looks like. It's and they say there's nothing. I don't think there's anything particularly meaningful to be drawn from it, but it's just another way of looking at it. Yeah, it's it's I I still love it, but. Um, you know, 
Tristan, you and I have gone back and forth a lot about Ford's fear of the word commodity. I mean, yeah, I would say, yeah, back and back and forth is a, is a bit too. I think we're both, I think we're kind of on the same page with it where we don't necessarily understand the fear of that phrase. And, and to a certain extent, this using it as an index, you know, an index statistic, you know, any kind of car, you know, you look at other things in the economy the same way. You look at, you know, what's the cost of grain or whatever else. And the using the cars as the index kind of would say, hey, they commoditize well. And they, you know, wh- why is Ford so afraid of, you know, these cars being labeled as a commodity when, by definition, that's it's something that everybody needs. You know, it, it, people are going to keep buying your product if it's if it's a commodity because commodities are, you know, necessary more or less. And we're wondering where that fear is coming from. Well, I so I was having to think about this, and the only sort of real logic I can come up with is they're very worried about ex- people expecting to have some kind of you know. Ser- uh, software as a service or transport as a service functionality built into their vehicles so, you know essentially they're going to have to compete with say like the likes of uber or google or apple even apple now are getting into the automotive sphere but they're looking at it from a very different angle than what a traditional you know manufacturer is going to look at which you know they have a even though you know mainstream manufacturers are all manufacturers essentially operating like a cartel type situation they right. compete against each other but they also share a huge amount of technology they develop they co-develop platforms and all that and even with that it's still a really really tough business to survive in and then the idea that they're going to have to build up um like a service kind of, uh, like a different kind of service infrastructure to actually do- deal with consumers directly and these currently like the, the businesses that are involved in it say like uber lyft you know even like google and apple they're not making any money on these things, but they are c- creating a market. If you have no, mar- if you have very slim margins to start with, you can't suddenly just you know s- expand your entire business model to incorporate this whole other thing that isn't even proven yet as a economic viability. But I don't really think that Ford has that much to worry about. I mean, maybe a little bit more now. I've looked at some of the sales data that that Ford came, comes out with over the years of say how much market they seem to be losing. They just, <laughs> no one, no one seems to care about. Them. And that was one of the things I was actually going to say to you guys, cause say I've been, you know, I've been up in the U S for a little bit and okay, I'm in Michigan and you don't see many Fords around these parts. It's everything's general motors well, with that's... a few, uh, you know, a few, you know, Dodgers and stuff like that, but there's no like F one fifties are you know, almost non-existent up here. It's really yeah. weird. And that's so so bizarre because obviously coming from the UK, the Fiesta has been the number one selling car there. What five years or something like that? Longer even? Oh well, the the, the Fiesta is essentially an institution in the UK. It's been you know over thirty years. It's been one of the most popular cars in the country. If you know, it, sometimes it goes down to like number two or number three or whatever. But it's yeah, it has forever been you know the if you if you didn't want to you know pay the extra money and get a Volkswagen a Ford Fiesta is the way to go sort of thing. So they've, they have, you know, they've been an institution for a long time. And, you know, the Ford uh, fan base in the UK is massive. So it, it, they, the old Fords now, old Fiestas command 
you know, crazy money, you know, because like, right. we don't have like the Mustang or anything like that. But people like into, you know, old Ford Escorts and Fiestas and stuff like that. Uh, that's all, you know, people, you know, especially like my age and that, you know, they grew up with these cars. So that's where our kind of enthusiast market goes in, is into these old economy Fords, which is kind of weird in the sort of, you know, when you look at like, the US uh, enthusiast market. Right, of course. All right. So, um, sorry, when you were talking about Ford's fear of being a commodity, you pointed out something that I had entirely missed up to this point. I mean, hearing from, you know, the various Ford execs saying that they don't want Ford to become a, a commoditized, mm. my thought was that they're using that as a shield to sort of direct people in a in a prestige path, you know, sort of like Mitsubishi did, rather than more of a hey, we're trimming back our our lineup so you don't get to choose anymore. You know, it's sort of one of those things mm-hmm. where we're not a commodity; we're, we're we're a special brand. But so you're, I think it's, I think it's really interesting to point out that it wouldn't necessarily be the physical vehicles that Ford would be making or not making commodities, but rather the nature Idea. of the yeah yeah the whole concept the yeah exactly yeah i had never thought about it that way well it's one of those things that like uber I, I don't know if this still holds true today but uber was kind of clear when they first sort of became you know a mainstream force in the world that their whole their long-term goal was to get rid of private car ownership and how were they doing that by leveraging private car ownership to make people be their own you know taxi service but their ultimate right. goal was to get rid of private car ownership so that is the kind of thing that I think that Ford is worried about. And they can see the tide is turning on that. People are less and less, you know, well, people don't buy cars now anymore anyway. You know, they lease them. So right. it's it's a whole different market. But let's say at the same time, I don't think if Ford continues to make good vehicles, which, you know, I've had two Fords and they were both perfectly fine vehicles. You know, they're they're from they're a bit older now, but they, you know, they were still from the, you know, the modern era of Fords. And they've been perfectly fine. But if they continue to make good cars that people can afford, then they're going to do all right. It's kind of like, you know, Ford is worried about Apple taking over, but they're not looking at, well, you know, Samsung is just a conduit for Google on phones, but people still have brand loyalty to Samsung. People still want to buy Samsung phones over the alternative, even though there's hundreds, if not thousands of smartphone manufacturers. Samsung, because of the quality of their hardware, keeps its fan base, keeps its customers loyal. So I think, I think Ford could Ford do the same. Yeah, I think it's something that that Andrew, you and I have talked about in our discussions on this question is that you know you you mentioned you know, if as long as they keep making you know good cars, people can afford, and you know that's the question is that it seemed like when this whole plan to um, you know, cut sedans and hatchbacks was announced and it was, it was seemingly meant to shift everything to the right and get people into higher margin SUVs, more expensive crossovers, things like that, where I wonder if that's, you know, they're not following through on, on your suggestion. Um, and they're not made, they might, might, they might still be making good vehicles, but they're not making you know good vehicles people can afford. Well, if you look at the take the expedition as the example, um, say when it came out, it was in a hot, near, near enough half the price of what it is today, um, and they sold I think it was over three hundred thousand or about three hundred thousand for the first like three years of production. 
Wow. Um, I, you know, that, was, that, was, that was each year. And then that after crazy. that... It, it, <laughs> Sorry, that's sorry. unbelievable. You broke, you broke Andrew. Yeah, but it's crazy. But now they're selling what? Now they're happy about what? Getting an extra five thousand units sold. Yeah, yeah. Like so four, that is it fourteen thousand they, they sold last year or something like that? Fourteen thousand more year to year. Oh, yeah, well, they, year over year. They've doubled. They've doubled the price almost. But they've also, you know, they're selling a quarter of what they used to sell. So is that is that good? I don't think it is. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean. It's it's so. I guess what what it always comes back to me in terms of like this um, ride sharing thing, and I, you can definitely give us a different perspective coming from you know a whole different country. But mm-hmm. living where we live, there is ride sharing, yes. But even I mean, I, I live thirty minutes outside of a big city, and it's people don't Uber out here. They don't and use Lyft. Near, you're very near, even. You know, your hometown has what two or three college campuses in it. Yeah, like, and still nobody uses it. I mean, it's it's not you know the main city, but it's a big town, and it's not a not a popular thing there. At least, right. yeah. So, so I guess what I'm thinking is this this fear that Ford and other companies have, where if they don't enter into ride sharing, if they don't become that commodity, someone else will take that market space. I mean. Is that sort of a coast, you know, coast to coast city focused mirage where we're kind of ignoring the entire middle of the country where it would make zero sense? I can't Uber or Lyft to work because it's just too expensive. Like it's not, it's not even practical. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a, it is a, these are with like, with all of these kind of things, it is very urban centric. Ride sharing makes a lot more sense. In, in urban environments than it does, you know, like any, you know, in the, say, in the, in the rest of, in middle America, it, de- it definitely doesn't make sense. And the same is the case in, you know, anywhere that's got a sparsely populated or relatively sparsely populated area. So I think the, the import, the importance of it is probably that is much more minimal, but at the same time, the cities are, you know, they are the population centers. They are, huge demographics are also are wealthy as well and they you know i would guess they buy more cars more often people in cities rather sure. than, you know people at, you know, where i'm at the moment i hit you know people are rolling around in trucks that are 20 30 years old without a problem it's not but whereas if you're in a city you're you know there's a lot more keeping up with the appearances and trying to say stay ahead of fashion which is where like the, the tesla model 3 and stuff it's a very fashionable item to have and in places where style is important more than anything else or compared to a lot of things those kind of markets do really well but when you're looking in more say rural environments where people where a vehicle is 99 percent just a tool it does it's not a fashion statement in any sense it's just you know how much utility can i get out of my my transport so i don't think that you know what's happening in the more rural areas isn't going to change but i am very convinced that uh, in urban centers, car ownership is going to, you know, really keep just keep dropping. It's going to keep going down and down and down because it's just it's just going to be so difficult. If I lived in a city like if I lived in London, I used to live in London. And if I didn't need a vehicle for work, I wouldn't have one because it's so expensive and so difficult to travel. You are better off using public transport or getting taxis or taking the bus. And they're you know, the more and more regulations to come in to make it more expensive. So it's just going to price people out of having it. 
And that is, you know, companies like Ford are going to lose a lot of market share from that. And it seems like with, say, the cutting of the, the passenger car market to almost nothing, they accept that, that people in cities are not going to buy their cars anymore but they will buy their SUVs and trucks in the rest of the country. So just thinking about London specifically, I mean, isn't, mm. isn't Ford cutting cars to appeal to a market, you know, using cities as an example, specifically London, uh, to appeal to a market that wasn't buying cars in the first place? I mean, are, you know, isn't it basically like um, we see people in cities are buying fewer cars, which probably has to be true, yet I feel like specifically in Europe, people in cities were buying few cars in the first place and i could be totally off on that and the ones that they were buying you know those weren't gonna be unless you're you know rolling like you know a footballer or something like that you know they're they're not going to be suvs and crossovers for the most part in the city they're going to be city cars and small vehicles and they're cutting those afraid of losing cities they're going to stop making the only cars that are being sold in cities well, in like in, they're not cutting those cars in Europe, as far as I'm right. aware. So yeah, even in, even in a, the US, yeah, yeah. But I say I, I haven't looked at it. But what like what are the sales numbers of the Focus and the Fiesta stuff like that? It's not they're not great, are they? I was really surprised to see the amount of first generation Focuses around it. It's a really odd thing. I just not a car that I would assume was very popular in the US, but apparently <laughs> I'm wrong. Yeah, it was very popular. Hey, let's move off of Ford. We're we're bored with Ford. Yeah, let, let's, <laughs> let, let's let's shift let's shift to another another. That's more than problem, I think. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, let, yeah. let, let, let's shift to another brand that's kind of in the middle of a of a of a or they're trying to change position. They're in the middle of that right now, and it's a brand that kind of confuses me. Loaf sometimes is is Mazda. Um, mm. Just kind of where they sit in the overall auto sphere um they're they're a little bit upstream of your of your typical toyota honda they're not quite to lexus acura but they keep pushing towards luxury 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 when it doesn't seem like the actual cars themselves fit the message they're trying to send so like my the question here is why is mazda continuing to push up market and is it a sensible strategy I think it is actually a sensible strategy, but I, with it, with all the strategies that I've ever seen Mazda have, they've, for whatever reason, they've never managed to really deliver on it. Um, <laughs> I like, I say this as someone. Oh, right. I, let me, I another am, thing uh, in this, in this question is uh, that I missed is, is it a believable shift? <laughs> Are they actually <laughs> going to deliver on it? <laughs> I mean, I, th I think they could, they have, they have everything they need to make it happen. I don't know what their, their problem is. Cause I say, I'm a huge fan of Mazda. Like the the first car I really remember like my parents having was a Mazda. And we've they've had you know, they had a they had a MX5 and then they got a one of the Mazda pickup trucks as well. So I've you know I've been kind of through the range and years with Mazda. And I've also rented some of the like their more newer cars and I've say not the brand brand new one but the last generation Mazda 3 is an amazing car to drive. It's so comfortable. I, I so drove the whole length from, you know, from Miami all the way up to northern Michigan in one of those. And it sure. was the most enjoyable experience I've ever had in a rental car. It was, it was great. I can't fault it for anything. It was so driving 800 miles in one day. And it was comfortable the whole time. It was a crazy, crazy experience compared to other vehicles I've done similar journeys in. It was right. by far and away 
the best. I mean, obviously, if you get a you know a more premium car, it's probably going to be better. But for that kind of price point, I had I, there's not one thing I could fault with it except not being able to work. I had a lot of boot, but. <laughs> that's kind sure, of sure 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 um, so i mean but can't they just accept and kind of push the fact that they're that good at that price point instead of trying to push their price point up mm-hmm. yeah i don't i yeah they could do it but they need to they need a serious marketing push behind them to do it and they don't i would assume they don't have the money to do it they don't they're not a big enough manufacturer to really do that uh, uh, it's just a real shame, I think, because say the, the Mazda three and the Mazda six have been good cars for a really long time, but no one cares about them except the you know the Miata. That's all people think of Mazda four, and it just seems to getting everything else just seems to get ignored. And they the the fact that they they weren't able to transition, they weren't able to capture the market they should have done with that does say does not bode well for them going into a more upmarket side of thing, even though they have everything they need to make it happen. They have the technology, they have the designers, they have the, the Mazda brand is, is not, you know, it's not worthless. People like the Mazda brand. It's just, they don't buy them for some reason. Well, it, it's one of those interesting things where they, they've seemed kind of aimless after they, uh, what broke away from the partnership with Ford, but then they've dipped their toes into performance with Mazda Speed, and they dipped their toes into making the Everyman's car, co-branding. I mean, they've tried all of this stuff just over the past 15 years, and at the end of the day, right now, Mazda is winning on racetracks, which is awesome. I mean, suddenly in IMSA this year, they're just on absolute fire, but they don't have a performance car in their lineup, and they want to push up market, but they don't really have a luxury car. Like, no one's looking at a Mazda 6 against uh, anything from Lexus. It's just... I, it seems like they can't stick to anything. Yeah, say so it's there. You know, no one's shopping uh, a Mazda six, say with a you know, a, a, I don't know, a BMW five series. They're looking at a, no. a, they're looking at an extra <laughs> Camry. You know, that's what they're that's what people I would imagine, or an Accord or something like that. So, and when you do that, the Mazda, in my opinion, comes out usually looking really, really good. Right, of course. And they still haven't managed to sell that many of them. And I don't. I, I say I don't have an answer for why, but it's say it doesn't bode well for their, you know, trying to go up market, because you know even like Lexus, Lexus has been you know in that in that business for what thirty years now, sure, and they're still way down the list compared to like the German luxury makes, in as far as sales go. Oh, so well, right, they've 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 built they've delivered some of the best cars in that segment as well. Like, you know, the, the original LS 400, the original IS 200, even the GS, the earlier ones of those, they were amazing cars. They're really good. And they, they, they stand up to the test of time, but that didn't translate into, you know, they're, they're in the, they're still in the same sort of field as like something like Alfa Romeo or something that is just a gimmick, <laughs> you know, it's just style over substance, but, yeah, I feel they Lexus run into has the, got the substance, but no they bias. run into the same issue that, uh, and I think Mazda's going to run into the same issue that Lexus did. Where I would say there are a few groups of car people that are super clannish, um, you know, be it you know truck people or what have you. But luxury car people are some of the worst. Like, you know, I think you're going to be very hard pressed to have someone, you know, jump ship from, you know their S-Class to a, you know, 7 Series Mercedes to an A8. I mean, yeah, you know, they they kind of stick there. And I think that might be 
you know, part of Lexus's problem was even with as long as they've been doing it, how late to the game, how late to the luxury sedan game they were. Um, I could then the places where you see them really stick out are the, you know, non sedan cars. Um, you know, we were, uh, looking at the LC, um, when we were in uh, New York, for example, and that is a, mm. you know, fantastic looking car. Like I would buy that, but I'm, you know, even, you know, only this far into my life, you know, if I make all the money and go buy a luxury car, I'm I'm going right to the Audi dealer first because that's, <laughs> well, that's what I grew up with, you know, yeah. and, you know, but that's, that's if I'm buying a sedan, you know, if, if I'm looking at something like the LC, they don't, nobody really makes anything quite like it. And I think despite the fact that that's true, you know, people are super clannish when it comes to luxury cars. And I, I fear that with, Lexus just now clawing their way into that space. I don't know if that's going to leave any room for Mazda to try to do the same. That, well, that was I, my concern. Well, I, I think too, like Lexus has the resources of the mighty Toyota behind Toyota. it too to keep kind of pushing upstream. Whereas, as you said, Mister Loaf, like the Mazda's Mazda doesn't have any of that. And even if they did have the resources and they did have, um some like a a well thought out strategy to try to penetrate, you know, upstream from where they're at, that, that market, that luxury sports market is so saturated. Is it, is there even room for them to make a dent if they get there? Like what, where would they end up? Like, where are they trying to land? You know? I think the, 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 the way you have to look at this or a way to look at this is you look at what happened with the new NSX and it's great car. Uh, you know, there's very little to complain about it. I, I think, from what I've seen, what I've heard, mm-hmm. but no one's going to buy one, and no one has bought <laughs> one. And that it does. It doesn't matter how good it is. It's not. It, it just doesn't have the appeal, even though it looks great and it probably drives amazing. You know, it has every box you can tick, like a Mazda, but it just doesn't inspire people in any way. And Mazda is even worse. Kind of like Lexus. The more I think about it, like the LS. Is a, is has always been a pretty good car. I don't know about the newest ones, but you know the nineties, early two thousands ones were really good. Well, they didn't do their own version of like an S eight or an AMG S sixty five. They just did the LS four hundred and you know take it or leave it. Right. That could have if they'd done something like that, which they've only they've done more recently. You know, with things like the LFA and the uh, was it the F ones, the sport ones that they do yeah, now. All the F, all the F, F sport ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but that's it's it's kind of too little, too late. They haven't they had the time to establish themselves earlier on with that, but they didn't. They were too they were too busy trying to be you know Japan's Rolls Royce rather than you know Japan's BMW, which is or Audi, which is something that probably would have made them a, you know made a bigger dent on the map rather than you know you look because you're not they're not appealing to performance buyers. It's just luxury, whereas the other the Germans do both. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, then I guess there's only one more question about Mazda. When does Renault-Nissan buy them? <laughs> <laughs> With the mess that's oh, going on there, I don't, don't think anytime soon. Yeah, don't don't say that. They they, they got a chance. Don't kill them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that would be, I would laugh if that happened. That would just be the end. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, a, that's just a, that's a sad fate for any. Say, I any would laugh and cry. Yeah, I mean, we got a bunch of questions about Tesla. We're going to throw all those away. I'm just going to ask you one question about Tesla, Loaf. Are you in or out? 
Oh, I'm I'm out. I'm not. I <laughs> yes. I, uh, <laughs> yes. We know. <laughs> I I I am not in. I am not in. You know, I have no financial position in Tesla. I never have. I've never been. You know, I've never been in the automotive industry for work. You know, I've you know considering it. You know, because I so I have my own businesses and stuff like that. So you know, it's always because it's a hobby. It's always like, oh, I'd like to get into the industry, but I've never been involved in it and. For me, when I first started reading about like Tesla and stuff like that, it was a nice escape from because I'm involved in the financial markets for the last like three or four years, just to get a break from the the you know having to read the you know geopolitical goings on to know what's happening in the markets. Mm-hmm. So, oh well, Teslas are this this light fun story. It's an interesting narrative. And then this fucking sorry, I'm not. I probably shouldn't swear. We have a we have a lovely expletive label we can throw on. Well, every episode that we've done so far. I was, I was going to ask you before we started if I was because I you know when I'm doing the podcast I try and be professional, but you know, they slip out now again. No, we, we 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 brag about the fact that we're not pros, so be as unprofessional as you'd like. Oh, <laughs> uh, you do a, you do a good are. job of sounding like pros, so I'll give you that. Well, wow. thank, you. thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's a well-done well podcast. In trouble. We're in trouble. <laughs> Sorry, we interrupted you there. Uh, yeah, you, you were saying, what were you saying? Something interesting. Mm. <laughs> I think you were talking about maybe the yeah. CEO. I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But you say when you when you go when you start reading about this, because when I first started, I didn't really, you know, I didn't have an opinion. It was just, it was an interesting thing. I'd heard about it, you know, what Tesla was doing and thought, oh, you know, I'll read Read about this because I'm, you know, I'm into the car industry. I've I've been a lifelong fan of cars and trucks and everything else. It's like, oh, great, a new automaker. That's something that I can really get behind and stick my teeth into and learn about this. This is great. This is good. Even though I'm not, you know, the EV revolution, especially when I started, I didn't even care. Um, but they say then you you end up in this rabbit hole of pro Tesla, anti Tesla, and everything else, and. If anyone's you know read my Twitter feed, they'll know I'm definitely more on the uh, Tesla skeptic side. But Indeed. that is just you know that's just a conclusion I came to. I started off much more optimistic, yeah. And then the more you read and the more things that happen, and it's like okay, this this is not really this. There's something more to this, and that's what a lot you know when you see a company that's been around for now 15, 16 years has lost over six billion dollars in that time. Oh. Yeah, Ooh, cumulative <laughs> figures. Oh, yeah. So that's how much over the course of Tesla's existence, they've lost six billion dollars. But you know, if they make you know a couple hundred million in one quarter, that's a that's a victory. You know, <laughs> oh, and no. it's just for and then you get the things like the Solar City uh, thing, where basically Musk got Tesla to buy a another company that he was heavily involved and invested in to stop them going bankrupt, and Tesla assumed their debt, and that was a a warning sign because you know. His cousins ran the company. He was heavily involved in it. He was the chairman, and he suddenly came up with a great idea that they should merge the two companies together right mm-hmm. at the time when things were getting really bad. And since then, basically, Tesla has just wound down their solar operations with the idea that one day they'll have this magical solar roof right. that everyone's everyone's going to have. And then you get things like you know the semi and the uh, the new Roadster two that's going to fly and definitely. And the Definitely things are going to fly. <laughs> his, are his are pers- you with us, Loaf, that you think flying cars are just fake? That's never going to happen. Yeah, it's it's uh, not in any not in any way that has been described so far. I don't think that's uh, that's 
that's so far out of the realm of practic of the practical realities that we live in. Flying cars are not. It's not something I'm going to be thinking about. Going, hmm. I wonder when Toyota's going to get onto this. Yeah, it's not. It's not right. a. It's, it's not a practical thing in the world. Um, but then you also with like the Tesla stuff, you have you know Elon Musk's personal behaviors of how he how he even came into Tesla by you know he invested early on and then basically pushed the original founders out and then managed to get a legal settlement which named him as a founder even though he wasn't you know Jeez, at the table really? at, the, at the yeah he wasn't at the table when the company got founded he he put money in i think it was about maybe 6 months a year after it got founded and then yeah he used his uh unique skills to get himself into the head of the company has now become this figurehead for the future for some some reason yeah. uh so and then you say with the things like he's done with uh the guy in thailand and the submarine thing and Jeez, yeah or it, it's just like the more you the more you sort of read into it it's like this this is just this is stupid this is silly there's nothing <laughs> that like you could I, I have no problem if you if you think the cars are great and you want to you know you want to do whatever you want to do and you, you know they're they're super powerful not 60 is really good you know everything about them. You know if you like everything about the cars, that's fine. But the cars themselves and the company are not the same topic of discussion. And that's where a lot of people, because they love the cars so much, they will do you know everything and anything to you know to defend them. And that's kind of you know it's a very strange situation where you have this seemingly thousands of people that are, you know an army defending Tesla and Elon Musk from any slight criticism yes. you know like today or the other day there was a, a story uh, inside evs came out with a story saying well i think it was actually from seeking alpha but inside evs republished it it was a story just saying well you know the uh the tesla pickup truck is going to have you know a lot of a tough sell for reliability they're going to have to really show their work mm -hmm. they're going to have to demonstrate that this is a real competitor to existing trucks and the tesla fans beyond furious that they would talk down about a tesla product before it's even out just saying that well you know maybe they, they're gonna have a hard sell on this you know how you know look at how ford has dominated the market for decades even about though, fetishized like, the reliability the single reliability uh, gm ran what that the longest running trucks on the road for like 15 years mm -hmm. in a segment where reliability is one of the number one selling points you know, yeah, you're going to have to prove that to anybody shopping in that segment. I don't think that's that. I mean, you you could even be optimistic and say, you know, look at some of the things that people have done with Teslas, and they've you know that there's that guy in uh, Quebec that put on a zillion miles as a taxi driver, and you know, it's like, yeah, if he, if he can do that, why can't they build a pickup truck? You could even be optimistic about it, and I bet the Tesla fans would be like, well, how dare you question it even this early? It's it's weird to see such a rabid fan base. They say they, so rapidly defensive. They say they turn on, and the thing is, things like e inside EVs and the situation, like with electric and you know Fred Lambert. Oh yeah, he 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 makes some he makes some valid criticisms very late because they are only because they personally affected him. And it's like he's a you know he's a, people literally say he is a traitor to the cause. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> that, that is what people have. You know, people, Wait, that was they like, arrange boycotts against. What is the cause, though? What, to, what is um, the cause? Know, accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy and eventually live on Mars for some reason. 
Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, no, I, mean, I, I hear you. Lope, I think it starts at the top, though, because how many, like, there's been reviews of the Model S or Model 3 that have gotten, like, a B review or, like, a 4 out of 5, where then Musk turns around and just blasts that publication mm-hmm. publicly for not giving them a perfect, like, starts at the top, right? Yeah, exactly. That, that is the thing. Pete, Elon Musk will come out and say, like, what he's done with um, uh, Ed Niedermeyer says, oh, well, you know, he, he lies, he does this, he does that. And it's like, well, okay, what is factually incorrect in his writing? Well, let's not worry about that, but he's probably funded by people that are uh, against Tesla and are betting against him, so we can't listen to anything he says. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he wrote a few articles in 2009 saying that, oh, Tesla, you know, might not be long for this world. So no credibility about anything he ever writes. And th- But Musk, say, promotes this. He, he sends his army of... Twitter and Reddit people after people by just saying, look at this person is, you know, talking down about us when we're just trying to make the best cars in the world. It's got five star safety rating. You can't say anything bad about that. Oh, no, no. You, wait, loaf. No, no, no. Don't you sell them short. It's not five stars. If they got if they had six. Now you know. <laughs> very true. Very true. If if there was such a thing, Tesla would get it according to them. Yeah. Oh. Would and who knows if this is even possible? Would a CEO change or figurehead leadership change make you think differently? I I think Tesla has tremendous brand value. Out of all the things that they have, the brand is good. They 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 could def. I don't think in the situation they are, what how they run their business now is it's never going to work. It's it's been an advantage, especially in the early days, but now it's just a hindrance, especially this, this de- the, the selling directly, not having dealerships, because yeah. they can't expand, you know, even if they have all this demand that they claim they do, they can't expand fast enough to service it. And they've done very little to really expand their service since the Model 3 came out, even though they've doubled their fleet size. And they only have themselves to work with. They, they have nothing else but themselves. So there's no dealerships involved. A possi- possibly maybe there's some other things going on in like China and stuff. But as far as the company line goes, they do everything themselves. But they can't expand enough. They do not have the resources to be able to actually deliver the experience that customers want and what they expect. Because when it was a niche manufacturer early on, and the, you know, the world accepted they're going to lose money at the moment, Mm-hmm. They could go the extra mile and really make customers feel, you know, feel valued. And that has completely gone out the window now. This is from people, customers of Tesla that talk to me and say, you know, say as soon as my warranty ran out, it's, you know, they're done. They're not, they're not helpful to you at all. And now they, they've basically tried to do away with customer service. You can't but call up with a problem with Tesla. You have to use the app now. As Ooh, I am. Like, There are ways to call them. But if you ever get the phone answered is another question. But the, the official protocol is if you want to book a service appointment, you have to use the app. If the app works, well, that's a, you know, that's a roll of the dice. Mm-hmm. So you, they're not going to be able to deal with this. What they should have done, in my humble opinion, is have flagship stores in London, New York, Paris, you know, major global cities have flagship stores that they run and they can, they can deliver that top-line customer service. But also, in other areas, let the Alfa Romeo, Jaguar, other dealership also sell Teslas. 
mm-hmm. they would sell so much more and they would also massively reduce their costs because right now they have to pay everything themselves whereas if they ran the dealership you know the dealerships take on a load of that responsibility so they could expand so much more without really spending anything if anything because the franchises are going to pay the dealers are going to pay you know tesla to have their branding they'll make money off it and they'll expand their footprint whereas at the moment they can't do anything and you know customers are left completely out of you know without any options because especially if you i'm sure you guys have done it you've been to you know you've got got a car and you've gone to the dealership and they've not given you the service you want Mm -hmm. you can just go to another dealership Right, of course. If, if you've got a warranty problem, it doesn't. If you've got if you've got a Ford with a warranty problem, it doesn't matter, or any other problem, it doesn't matter what dealership you go to. You can choose. You have the freedom of choice of which dealership you want to use. If you have a bad experience at one, you can go to another. When it's a Tesla, Tesla tell you which service center you have to use. That's it. The, you don't you don't get a, if you don't get an experience if you don't get the customer service you have a problem with whatever at the service center. That's it. You you can't go to another test of service because you're not on their books. You're not in their you know in their uh, you know zone. Jeez. So you're done. So th- that's you know for all the like I had a you know I had a problem with the car dealership recently that you know tried to sell me a complete lemon mm-hmm. that was unsafe and everything like that and for probably three times what it was worth. <laughs> so I'm not I'm never going to defend dealerships, but I have the choice. If I if that dealership gives me bad service, I can go to another one and I can complain to Ford or whoever it happens to be to say this dealership is damaging your brand by how they treat customers. Whereas when it's Tesla, you can only complain to them. There's no, there's no real account of it. It's just this, it's this sort of brick wall of, you know, what Tesla Tesla's comm side, it's customer relations side is just a black box. Some people do really well. Some people don't do very well, but they have, you have no recourse. You just have to deal, you get what you get and that's it. So that's not in the mass market. That is not going to translate very well. So I think Tesla has a huge opportunity, and they will be a, they could be a force to be reckoned with for the long term. But the whole business does need restructuring. But that brand value is really strong. Right. You know, I, it it almost makes me feel bad. Go ahead, Nick. Yeah, sorry. It almost makes me feel bad for the the folks who are are you know the engineers and the designers who are are working there day in and day out because they really are doing some great things. Like we've talked about on our podcast a lot, how we've been out on EVs and not necessarily like a long-term solution. But when you just take the name off of that car and you just look at that EV versus the other ones on the market, it looks better. It performs as well or better. Like they're doing some great things day to day, hands on. And they just have this, dope at the top who has no idea how the car business works and it's just devaluing what what a lot of really smart and really inventive people are actually doing yeah it, tesla couldn't have got to where it is today without elon musk and what elon musk has done i've said this on every podcast i've been on is incredible he has done things even you know, removing the, the, the hyperbole about landing rockets and all that kind of stuff he has done things that very few people would have ever imagined possible to say to start a new automaker in the US in California and manage to crank out half a million cars in a few years. I don't if you if you've gone back to say, you know, you've gone back to 2003 when Tesla first came out. 
no, I, I very few people I think would have been. Oh yeah, they're going to be you know, they're going to be a a leader in the in the industry in some aspects in a few years time, right? And they are going to you know regardless of what people say, Porsche, Volkswagen, obviously they're the same thing, but you know Porsche and uh, Jaguar are looking at Tesla, looking at their market and saying, how can we do? How can we get these customers? How can we do what they're doing? They are they are a, they are competition. They are not the normal competition and they are not necessarily the best competition. It's not like, uh, you know, say when you have you know, like the, the golden era in like, like Japan or something, when you've got Toyota and Honda and Nissan all working really hard to make the better car than the other people. Tesla just does its own thing and other people can take bits from it and then try and put it into their own thing. But you, this is the problem I have with a lot of the Tesla you know, super fans that unless a company does exactly the way things, the way Tesla does it, then they're not really serious about any, you know, their EVs, unless they, you know, compete on exactly the same level as Tesla, as far as, you know, range not to 60 times and not having a grill. That's right. a really, really important thing. If a car <laughs> has a grill, it is why even, you know, it might, as we say, it might as well be a horse <laughs> and car. That is how, for some reason, that is how these people look at it. If you say, if you have a grill on your EV, you, you clearly didn't really want to make this car, did you? Because oh, Teslas don't geez. have a grill. So, and that's it's not that's not the point. Tesla, you know, the EVs are an emerging market. Tesla is in many ways leading that market, not entirely, but they are definitely setting the benchmark. And that's really where I think they should have done. They should have been this more aspirational, which obviously is what they are anyway. But they should have really just stuck to that. They made the Roadster, made the Model S, and say, "This is what can be done. This is what we're really good at." And that's it. Rather than being, oh, well, we're going to take over the entire industry. We're going to make cars. We're going to make trucks. We're going to make, you know, semis. We're going to make everything. So, no, make really good cars that demonstrate what the technology capabilities are. And that's it. And you can, you know, you can be a, uh, hey, you could be, they could have been like the Alfa Romeo or the Maserati or something, but with better reliability of the EV world. So, <laughs> this is something that you can aspire to. This is a goalpost to say, this is styling, this is performance. Now show us now, so the rest of the world shows what you can do. But trying to actually compete on every single level, the same as a traditional automaker, to try and justify their existence of why they're not making money just yet, is and now obviously with the robo taxi thing, oh, it's just fantasy. Yeah. It just the fact the reality of making cars is not the you know it's a different world of making. $35,000, cars than it is making $150,000 performance Model S's and Roadsters. It's a mm -hmm. whole different world. And not only gets so well, we, we, we're kind of getting there with that. But if we then say make a big truck and make this and make that, then it will be, then we'll be where we need to be. That's, they should have said, they should have been the technology leader. They should just, you know, they should not, the other examples were actually bad. They should be the port, they should be the Porsche of EVs. They say, this is what we can do. We're better than everyone else at this specific thing. Let, you know, let, every, let everyone else pick the, pick the pieces of the rest of the market. No, no, one, no one needs Porsche to make a, a thousand different cars. They can make the 911, they can make the Cayenne, and they could probably do away with you know, the Cayman maybe. But they don't need this massive range. They lead their particular niche with a very focused approach. And that's right. what Tesla and, should have done rather than trying to be everything to everyone. 
Well, and the Porsche market is nothing to scoff at. I mean, just yeah. the Boxster and Cayman alone could easily float the, you know, a sales equivalent to that could float the entire Tesla business in probably two years. I mean, those, those cars sell like crazy all over the world. Maybe not six billion, but you know, <laughs> yeah, I was say, six billion is a big hole. Maybe not six billion. Let me take that back. But that's where the people have a problem. You know, especially the the real vocal critics of Tesla have that problem because say Tesla is a company that's lost billions and billions of dollars over the years, but is still valued, say, at a similar value to Ford and GM and more than some of the other automakers, mm-hmm. despite having a fraction of the volume and losing loads of money and having an unproven business model. And people are like, well, Tesla cannot be worth $40 billion, $50 billion because they sell cars and lose a billion dollars in a, a year doing. That's not, that doesn't make any sense. And then when you, the idea that the Elon Musk's companies you know, are always out for a subsidy. <laughs> any market right. where there's a subsidy in, they're going to go for it. And I can, I can understand how People feel slightly annoyed that you know they're paying their full tax rate, and then someone's getting you know seven and a half thousand dollars off their tax bill because they bought a hundred fifty thousand dollar Tesla. It's like that is not a way to encourage EV adoption. That is not. That is just you know say that's a subsidy truffle hound of of an approach <laughs> to things. So that's what you know. That's why people are really they see that all the problems that like. That you or I see on the on the sort of service level, and then they say, "Well, how does the economics of this make sense? How does this business actually work?" And when you say, "Well, the business doesn't work, but somehow it's valued at the same kind of level as a company that sells ten times or even more times the amount of vehicles, has four or five even more times the amount of revenue, and make a profit, and but they va- and pay a dividend." Mm-hmm. And they're valued the same. It's like, well, this just doesn't. Like, there's no way this makes sense. <laughs> I don't and understand. Yeah. Well, if it doesn't make that much sense, we we said we wouldn't take up too much <laughs> of your time with Tesla. So let's. I really didn't mean to. I really didn't mean for that to happen. But thank you for <laughs> let's bounce us anyway. to the next question. Yeah, I personally learned a lot. <laughs> so I try not to talk about it so much now because it's just I I'm kind of sick of it myself. Really, it's like I I keep getting dragged back into it, but. It's like I've, I'm kind of done with it. I, I've got, you know, I, I have formed my opinions. I know what it's going to take to change them. I'm just going to let it really see how it plays out. I just, sure. you know, I, I, it's too tiring to deal with because it's, it's as bad as, you know, political Twitter. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> it, it, is, it totally it is. is. So I'd say, I just like, I'm, you know, people can believe, I'll, I'll talk to people about it, but I'm not going to be getting into public debates over you know, is Elon Musk advancing humanity or not? Yeah. Right, right. Um, earlier in the podcast, we just mentioned transactional profits a little bit. Uh, and, and I guess I, I just want to go back to that because my my impression of all these companies, especially the companies who are pairing back lines like Ford, presenting everything to their shareholders in terms of transactional profits, it comes across as sleight of hand. Is, is that really what's going on? Well, I think it's Ford seems to have taken a really drastic approach to it with cut, say, cut, basically cutting their entire passenger car line. Mm-hmm. But if you look, like, if you look at the, uh, the, the say, like the German manufacturers, you look at say Ma- uh, BMW or Mercedes, 
and even Audi now as well. The lineup boat is incredible. There's you you can you know you can buy your Mercedes by the inches. You know I want one that's this long and this wide. Okay, <laughs> right, you get this right. one. And I think that's kind of what Ford had done as well. They just bloated their lineup. They've got you know how they've got what four or five different crossovers, and then they've got the SUVs. Then they've got the cars, and it's just like you don't need that many choices. It's obviously it's great for customers to have choice, but. It, the amount of investment required to make these kind of sales, and you, you just, they've been cannibalizing their own markets. And I think that's like what happened with the expedition because they then started introducing smaller and mid sized crossovers. The same sales that they would have had just got split to four, three or four different models. Mm-hmm. But all, that just means they, they don't make as much money. Because, you know, the, the cost of having to make all these different production versions. Yeah, that's not that's a that's a big cost to make these different ones. So mm-hmm. I think it's it's they've gone too drastic with it. But having a real serious discussion and trimming the lineup was probably a good thing. Poss- possibly not as extreme as uh, say what like Dodge has done, you know. Oh and well. The, <laughs> to be yeah, fair, I don't think they paired their lineup. I just think they were making crap cars and no one bought them. <laughs> I, I like I what I don't I think it's the is it the Jeep Compass or something like that that was came out I don't know about ten years ago Tristan it's uh, just, it's a, it's like the compact yeah it was on the on the Caliber platform yeah. they just the, they just re released it the Patriot it's the worst car I've ever been yeah the <laughs> comp- like, yeah, it's quite like, quite literally the worst car and I. I've been in a lot of bad cars. I, you know, cause I, I've, I've traveled the world. I've, I have driven Chinese cars. Um, and they're, they, they're a lot of fun, actually, you know, because they're just, they're super light and they're easy to throw around. But yeah. that Jeep, that Jeep is the worst, most uncomfortable. It's just nothing. There's literally no redeeming features about it whatsoever. <laughs> but they somehow manage yeah. to sell lots of them. And that's the kind of thing that baffles me about the, the US market, especially. You buy some really awful cars, and I don't know why. Like, I, like there are, there's, you know, there's a spectrum. Obviously, it's not that it's, you know, good cars and bad cars. But say that that the Chrysler lineup for the last, say, what, ten plus years has been rubbish. There's been nothing redeeming about, as far as I'm concerned, nothing redeeming about it whatsoever. Until you get, to, you know, say like the, the Challenger or something like that. Mm-hmm. But the actual, say, the Jeeps and the Chryslers. Garbage. <laughs> Don't know why anyone ever bought. Yeah, it's the very high, like the very high tiers of their line. Those are, those are fine. You know, when you get to Grand Cherokees and Wranglers and um, in mm. Jeeps, and you get to three hundreds in Chryslers, and you get to, you know, some of the higher end Dodges. You know, those those make sense, and the trucks are good. But then, yeah, they have this this you know logarithmically declining quality the further you go down the line to yes arguably i test drove one when i was considering getting a car i was like oh little a little jeep that sounds fun (laughs) wow wow was i ever wrong i I, just dismal the worst cvt in the world ergonomics that even my t-rex arms couldn't handle like nothing was in the right place that it absolutely dismal and yeah and that's you come from there all the way up to the you know highest luxury edition grand cherokee which is well regarded compared to things even like land rovers and range rovers i mean you know when when, when they come into that trim they're up there hitting with those big boys all the way down to 
an actual piece of flaming garbage. So yeah. it's mind boggling. Complete so, waste yeah. of brand reputation, really. Yes. Well, yeah, I think that's and why no. they sell is the brand reputation because the Wrangler and the Cherokee, you know, are mm. so loved and so revered. It's like, well, if it says Jeep on it, it's automatically going to be like a Wrangler and it's going to be great. Well, not really, uh, but they can sur- they can survive on that brand recognition. But and I think a, one piece of that too, Loaf, is that and I was talking with the guys about this. This was man early on last year, maybe like you wonder why people buy bad cars because I think most of the general market aren't car people. Mm. You know, it's just, it's just something to get them from to work and back into the grocery store. And if it, if it's cheap enough and if it looks cute or whatever the reason is, then they'll go for it. You know, it comes, it comes in the right color. They like the red. That's right. Good enough. You know, that is, that is ultimately how a lot of people do buy cars, which you, it's frustrating, but it's also, it's also, fine you know i'm not expecting every car to be you know uh you know a driver's car or you know have kind of a real luxury feel to it you know i really like rubbish cars to be honest you know i I do like (laughs) you know cheap cheap euro boxes they are they are completely fine by me like what like renault has done with the with dacia is brilliant i Mm -hmm. i thought they have done so well out of all the things that they've done wrong you know renault nissan but and they just listened done, to James May. Yeah, well, <laughs> what they did with Dacia, you know, the Dacia sells is one, you know, it's one of the most popular cars in France, I think, mm-hmm. because it's you can buy a brand new car for like eight thousand euros, <laughs> and that's good enough, and it comes with a you know a four year warranty or whatever it is, and well, why am I going to spend three times that on a you know Volkswagen Golf? Mm-hmm. <laughs> When I could just, you know, this is still going to get me from A to B. And that's, you know, that, that, that is a much more of the, the sort of European market is much more practical and very, you know, much less in the like sort of brand status kind of thing. It sort of comes to go to the extremes. You either get people that are very happy, you know, buying Dacia's or buying Fiat's because they're super cheap. And then if, well, if you want to, if you're going to get spent any more money, well, then you might as well buy an Audi because like in the Europe, you can buy an Audi A1, which is not that expensive compared to, you know, I say like a Volkswagen Golf. It's a bit smaller or whatever, but it's if you want that brand status, it's very, very cheap to get into a premium brand in Europe. Whereas mm-hmm. I think in the US, it's a little bit more difficult because they don't have the range in the same way. Right. Started. You start at the A3. Good luck. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one one thing I noticed when I I, I wrote a blog about. Um, the difference between selling SUV or CUVs on the same market as cars. So obviously here in America, um, something like the Hyundai Kona, which is a subcompact SUV is marketed up against, um, you know, something like the Hyundai GT or the Elantra. So there it's basically a class down in size, but price comparable with the, Mm. with the class above. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm just wondering, Obviously, that's kind of where the transactional profit comes in. But I'm just wondering if that kind of thing is pushing the used market. I mean, people come to a lot and see the smallest SUV starting at 25000 or a mid-sized car. Maybe they don't want the car, and they just kind of go to the used lot. You know what I mean? Is that is the cost difference, price increase by uh, – is the price increase on – CUVs that are now flooding the market, driving people to buy used instead of look at a new car. 
that's a that's a tough question. I don't think I have an answer for that. Uh, what yeah. I would say, what I would say though, is for the manufacturers, it makes a lot of sense because say they can they can make cars that are effectively the same size and the same cost to make as the as you know as the class comparable one, mm-hmm. but because it's that little bit taller, they can add the sort of perception of I say an SUV is worth more than a car, even though they really don't cost that much different to make. They are basically the same, especially right. you know a crossover that you know, just has a slightly higher ride height <laughs> and a bit more plastic on the, you mm-hmm. know, on like the bumpers or whatever. So it's just, in, it's in the manufacturer's best interests to give this perceived increase in quality and everything. Say, so, yeah, you buy, you know, an SUV is a better choice for you because they can charge a little bit more and make a little bit more money on just the perception that they're more valuable, even though they are basically the same thing. Right. Do you, and do you think that, do you think that perception will ever get shattered or is the marketing good enough where it's just as long as they call it a crossover or a SUV or whatever they want to call it, it's just inherently going yeah. to be worth more because adventure. Um, I think I don't <laughs> even think it's really a, the adventure side because most people don't even use them for, you know, exploring the world. They just, they just, you know, drive them to Walmart. Right. Um, but the, it's, it's the, the feeling of like this feeling of safety, um, having better visibility on the road. I, that in itself, I think, justifies the cost to people. That they because they can they're higher up, they feel safer, they can see more. Whereas, mm-hmm. like the I you know, I've got uh, in the UK, I've got a, an old an old BMW five series. But I went from driving a Toyota Hilux to driving that. Jeez, and it's something you know, it's like it does feel like you're sitting on the floor because you know I'm used to driving a truck, you know, and it's that's you know they're they're not much different in length and width wise. But that height wise makes a huge difference in where you feel your place on the road, especially when you know more and more other vehicles are crossovers and SUVs. Mm-hmm. That it is, just that was creates a... that sort of need that that the the comfort you get from having a, a a higher driving position. I think just justifies it to a lot of people. They feel safer with it. Yeah, I think that is something that we we might overlook in our discussion of this. I think we tend to scoff at the you know parking lot queen um land cruisers and you know because <laughs> I, I think a lot of us in the united states especially live through you know in my background in particular you know going to a private school i lived through the u.n relief convoys that were field trips um when you've got you know three land cruisers and actual hummer um you know it's like people are driving their kids on school field trips in you know, UN relief vehicles, we all should have been wearing blue helmets, um, you know. But I think having done, having lived through that, I think a lot of us are tend tend to like write it off towards this. Oh, I could take it off road someday, and that's why people are buying them. But I think you bring up a good point of just that that visibility and that place on the road is something that I, you know, I hadn't even really thought about that until you said it because you know, I've having driven both. I went from I went from a Toyota 4Runner to a Jeep Grand Cherokee, and I worked my way down to an Outback, and now I'm in a WRX, and <laughs> I kind of, you know, I kind of slid down the 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 size scale there pretty rapidly, and the yeah, Miata next for you, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so the BRZ isn't it? BRZ, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Yep, yep. Yeah. Whatever that is. <laughs> and I don't, and and yeah, you you don't see things. I feel like I have to get out and look behind me before I back out of parking spots because I'm between two pickup trucks, you know, and mm. that's. 
you know, that's something that, although it has occurred to me, like I felt that, I never could never occur to me as that would be why someone would buy one. But that's a interesting point. I don't think the three of us have ever really discussed. We tend to write it off as the, you know, American, you know, misplaced lust for adventure. But well, maybe I, it's I think that's. I think that's part of it because it Definitely is just part of it, yeah. your, you can go, well, I, I now have this SUV, even if it's only a two wheel drive one, but I don't really know what that means. So <laughs> right. I'm sure a lot of people are buying them thinking that they're, you know, buying a four wheel drive, you know, something that's capable off road and they're just buying, you know, the two wheel drive version. I'm sure that happens now and again, but you know, people are buying thinking, well, yeah, if I do want to go camping, if I want to go away and do a road trip, then we do have, you know, we have all the room to put stuff in. Um, whereas, say, in the U.S. market, where there isn't a, you know, an abundance of wagons, mm-hmm. which, you know, Europe is, you know, filled with, you know, wagons. So people get that same kind of utility of having that extra load space. Don't get me whereas started. that market isn't here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, it's, a, it's a sore point for, I mean, I think many uh, auto enthusiasts in the U.S. that you don't get the, you don't get those manual diesel wagons that we do. Manual diesel yeah, right. wagons. Oh, yeah. Yep. Super popular. <laughs> hey. You shut up. Yeah, fine. Um, before uh, the forerunner, don't before argue the in front of the guest. Before the <laughs> forerunner, we're, we're, we're two Volkswagen uh, group wagons, an A4 and a They were brown so. or diesel, so, you know, or manual. But no, uh, anyway. It should have been all those things. One, one thing that I do have to ask about, since we're talking about cost and, you know, the idea of safety, it almost feels at times to me that there is an element of classism in the race to make EVs and the race to make SUVs because the when I when I wrote my blog about SUVs I pulled some stats from Edmonds about the cost so you know a, a uh, for example Hyundai Accent and a Hyundai Kona are about eight thousand apart uh, you know something in the in the compact class would be about um, another eight thousand then when you get up to midsize the difference between a midsize car and the SUV that's based on the same platform is about twelve thousand dollars. It just seems like at some point it has to have a social effect, right? At some point, people can only afford small cars, and then there is no cheap SUV option, really. Well, I think this this actually comes back to the the Ford situation. Uh, the Ford could be well have you know see the writing on the wall and think we're you know times are going to get tough soon. We, you know we've had economic expansion for more than ten years now. In all the way our economy works, there is going to be another recession. There is mm-hmm. going to be a period of contraction. And Ford may have seen the writing on the wall and said, "We need to really focus. We need to trim the fat so we can, you know, we can make it through the next recession like we did the last one." And if the market, you know, demands more for you know SUVs while they're doing it, they're going to keep charging for it. Yeah. But I would think what we're probably going to see, you know, when the next you know down economic downturn does come. You know, the prices of the expedition are going to come down. Mm-hmm. They're not going because I let me quickly have a look. There, I think the like the average transactional price of buying an expedition now is like near enough fifty thousand dollars. Jeez, um, and that's you know that that is not gonna that's not gonna hold up when they they can't sell any because you know people are broke. So. It's gonna; those prices are going to come down. Right at the moment, I think we are at the top end. You know, I mean, you could have probably said this, you know, for the last three or four years. Mm-hmm. There is only so much market to go around, and 
you know, everyone's fighting for now what is now increasingly smaller markets, but with more and more options. So it's it's a hyper competitive environment, and the prices that we're seeing today on new cars, especially the more you know, premium premium end of things, are going to come down because they're just the market is not going to be able to support that when money becomes tight again. That's interesting because I'm just thinking back to our last, you know, economic collapse. Ford, my my impression of it was that Ford did well during that time because it maybe it was coincidence, maybe it was foresight. But at the time when America had their last recession, Ford was making really, really good small cars because they just they suddenly realized, hey, we have all these Euro models. Let's just bring them over here. And they happened to sell well, you know, like the Ford ZX3 and um that, that, that was the focus, yeah, the ZX3 and, and, and stuff like that. So I guess my thought was the next time a recession hits, people are going to want to go back to those small cars, right? I, I remember uh, my mom was looking at buying a car kind of just in that time, and people were counting one or two miles per gallon as, like, found gold. <laughs> it, it, was, it was kind of insane the way people treated that MPG. And, of course, now we're again in a market where everyone's buying those SUVs and CUVs. So it just seems almost like Hyundai's going to do really well with all those accents when it happens again. But you're thinking prices could just come crashing down on the same vehicles. Yeah, well, you're, you're going to be able to get a lot better. You know, the, the sticker prices will probably come down a bit. But then, you know, when you go into the dealers and they're absolutely desperate, you're going to be able to get a huge amount off the sticker price, I, w- I would expect. And mm-hmm. you know, what will happen is, they say things like, the expedition will continue to sales will, con- will you know will go down they will right. continue their long-term trend of going down but you'll think like what is it like the the escape which is like the sort of smaller compact one yes the the mid-size yes correct yeah like something like that can- will people will not buy an expedition they'll buy one of those instead gotcha because the the the, the the efficiency now of some of the smaller compacts and you know mid-size crossovers are really good they're not they're not terrible especially for the size of the vehicles that they are. So you're not going to get that much. I think the, 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 the compact buyer will buy compacts. You know, they will, people will buy compact still, but they're still going to buy crossovers. They're not going to sure. buy, you know, little, you know, they're not going to buy a Volkswagen Golf. They're not going to buy a Ford Focus. They're going to say they're going to buy a Ford Escape or they're going to buy whatever smaller crossover that Ford or whoever happens to make. Sure. So it's kind of like you're thinking a permanent shift now where like this is just where we are. Yeah, I'd say, I think that's the, the SUV I don't think is going anywhere because it's just it's kind of self-fulfilling and you say like based on this idea that when everyone around you has one of these bigger vehicles you're going to buy one as well, you know. Mm-hmm. What what's the shift what shift is going to be required to make people go to smaller vehicles that aren't that much more fuel efficient? Right. Right. It would have you to be one can, hell of a recession. <laughs> yeah, you say you you can upsell people on bigger cargo space, more practicality, and all that kind of thing, but you can't really sell them on. Well, a smaller car would be better. You don't need to have three suitcases. You can get away with two. You know, that's sure, not sure. that's not a selling point of why you would want to you know downscale even more. All right. Well, I mean, I I, I think if we had a soundbite for a trigger warning, now's when we'd have to play it because. I mean, we can't get out of this without talking about last night's big news. And, of course, Nick is very sensitive to this topic. But (laughs) 
The C8 is here. It's for real, and it's actually mid-engined. Let's talk about this risk that Chevy's taking, whether or not you th- I mean, Loaf, do you think this is worth it for, for GM? Someone else go first, because I, I do have actually opinions on this, believe it or oh, not. Oh, great. I want to save them, so everyone I, else can have their say. I, I'll start then. I got to say, I mean, and I'm not just saying this for the meme. Um, I honestly think it looks great. I love the, I'm a sucker for a target top. So just the fact that there's now a mid-engine Corvette, starting price around 60000 you know, in, in that five to seven year window when we see the Corvette depreciation, that could be a car that I might actually want to for real buy. That's how much I like it, despite the absolutely hilarious array of buttons. I genuinely <laughs> laughed when I saw that image because it looks like Neo's coat from The Matrix Reloaded, and it's absurd. <laughs> but, but I love it. I mean, I, I think it could work. It, it Honestly, the whole thing worked on me already, so I think I have to say that it has to be worth it for GM. Nick, what do you think? Oh, man. Um... Loaf, I am not against the idea of the of GM making, I mean, relatively speaking, entry level mid engine sports car. I have nothing wrong with that. I think it could resu- honestly could result in a massive wake up call for these other sports car brands who are making these things. You, we brought up the NSX earlier for over a hundred thousand. If if this Corvette can cut it in half with the same performance numbers, like. That's almost paradigm shifting. But my problem with this whole thing is why not call it something else? Just because of what the Corvette is and always has been, it was designed as a front engine rear drive sports car, and it essentially conquered the world in that configuration. I have no problem with GM making a car like this, but just brand it something else. All right, Tristan. Um... I'm this is one of the one of the times where you know I'm kind of right in the middle. I I don't see a problem with naming it the Corvette. Um you know I think that things can change and I think anybody who knows me a lot knows I'm kind of actually uncomfortable with change. Um but <laughs> but but in my mind I know that things can change and I think that conquering the world as a front driver engine car when front driver engine cars were conquering the world is great, but now you know mid engine cars are conquering the world, and I think it's time to show that you can conquer the world there. Um, and I don't think the name is as important, but I also don't have I didn't I didn't have a connection to it to begin with. I was just like, yeah, Corvettes, those are the sports cars that GM makes, um, and you know the fact that it's mid engine now has no impact on me personally i don't have a family history i don't have a personal history i've sat in a running corvette twice if you count both legs of a road trip <laughs> like <laughs> <Nice>. you know <laughs> so um i am entirely i agree with andrew i'm entirely sold on the outside um the steering wheel makes my eyes water a little I bit. I don't know what they're thinking. Also, um, how can they not how can they not have the little, you know, the center rondels go up and then shape the buttons like the Corvette flags? Come on. This is this is super basic anyways. Yeah, and yeah, the the the, the steering wheel makes my eyes water. The touchscreen does as Nick pointed out look like a iPad duct taped to the dashboard. Um and 
those that row of buttons is hilarious. But that being really said, is. if I can get something that'll go toe to toe with an SX or even higher for sixty grand, I mean, Andrew, you were mentioning like this is something you could potentially buy. I'm entirely on board with that. Like, you know, if it comes down in the next five six years and is a forty thousand dollar used car, ooh, why not? You know, I mean, it's going to be the first generation when they're a mid-engine, and, you know, maybe if the Corvette people go for it, there will be some collector value. It might not come down that far, but, you know, it leaves the door open for that happening later on, and Mm -hmm. suddenly you have me, who I was not interested in a front-drive, front-engine, rear-drive Corvette, even at the lower price tiers, because it wasn't that exciting to me. Having something in that price tier that's going to give you, you know, supercar numbers from you know you know that match up with things with names like an nsx things like that that's much more exciting to me personally just because of the configuration so i think you open a new market with the risk of potentially closing an old one and not even just age old you know it's not even older people it's younger people who have more of a history with Corvette like Nick. So I, I, I'm still juries out on whether it's going to pay off for them. Me personally, I am very in on the new Corvette personally. Um, but I don't know. I'm still, I still question whether it's going to work out for him. Okay. Your turn loaf. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's all we got to (laughs) say. Well, so I'm, you know, a bit, a bit of everything that you've said, I can kind of agree with. Um, I've never been a fan of the Corvette. I don't dislike it, but it's ne- I've just never had any, it's never done anything for me. I have never seen a Corvette and gone, oh, wow, one day I want to own one of those. Mm-hmm. It's never, ever been my thing. I can look like, especially like, you know, the, the like there was it the, the Stingray from the 60s. Sure. You can look at something like that and go, that, that's a really cool looking car. But the general Corvette lineup has done nothing for me ever. But when I see the, the C8, get a, you know, do its unveiling yesterday. I was like, eh, yeah, I could, I like this. This is actually probably the first new car in, I don't know, four or five years, apart from like the, the Honda urban EV. I've gone, Ooh, yeah. yeah, I want, I actually want to own this. I really like this. It's say so I, the, the interior is interesting, but it, I'm not going to hold it against any of it. I, I can see why people don't like it, mm-hmm. but I think in, for what my sort of mental picture of what a Corvette's supposed to be, that interior works for me. I mean, yeah, if I'm buying a Corvette, I like that interior. That I'm happy with that. I don't care what if the passenger can touch the controls. My car, go. Don't even look uh, at the touchscreen. Get out of yeah, here. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. This, this is driver's car, isn't it? It's not, you know. That's kind of my take on it. It's like, yeah, the, I don't. It's not. So, it's the car is not for the passenger. The car is for the person driving. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, I've never been interested in a Corvette before, and I am now. So even if they do alienate some of their, you know, their longtime Corvette fans, well, okay. Well, what are they going to buy instead? Um, a Camaro. Nick, can <laughs> answer that question? <laughs> Camaro, Mustang. How about an 8 Series? Yeah. Is is someone that's a big fan of a Corvette really going to buy an 8 Series? I I don't know. That's a very small cross-shopping window, I think. I'm just trying to think front-rear 
Lexus this is, LC is the only thing. I mean, obviously <laughs> there are there are options for front you know front engine rear drive cars, but you're talking about Corvette guys that are not going to buy a Corvette because of this. They're not going to yeah. go. I, I would imagine a real Corvette guy is not going to go buy a Mustang. You know? yeah, he probably won't. Oh, of course not. So you say they, they, what, if they're not going to buy the mid-engine Corvette because they're being petty about it, you know, you've got fifty years of Corvettes with the engine and where you want it. If they're not going to buy it for that, they're going to buy a Camaro. So GM gets the money either way. So yeah, I, yeah, I think that, I think this is the hundred percent best thing uh, Chevy could have done because it say. It's opened the market up to more people. I am now, for the first time in my life, interested in what they're going to do with this Corvette. Me too, and Tristan as well. I mean, it yeah. it seems to have actually worked for real. Which that's and actually I, more concerning than anything else. I uh, <laughs> I don't know. And I'd like to put that in the context. Well, I'm not even a guy that's really into like mid-engine cars. My favorite Ferraris are front-engine. Like mm. I'm not I'm not that into mid-engine. But when it's you know, when you're talking about it's a cor- it's a you know it's a GM car it's a Corvette that's sixty thousand dollars in its mid engine, and you know it's going to be relatively, one would assume cheap to maintain, heavily modifiable. Mm-hmm. They're going to build a load of them. What is not to like about this? This is, you know, this is taking the the mistakes with like what Honda did with the NSX and going right. Let's let's get rid of all the the unnecessary bits. Let's just make it you know the core as good as possible. Don't worry about the fluff, and hopefully that's what they've done. Yeah, I'm hoping lowering, so. Lowering that price point, if it was eighty thousand, a hundred thousand, I'd be like, Oof. I mean, it's still going to open the market, I think. But when the entry level is sixty thousand, that is that you're you're competing against some strong but not that good, you know, front engine rear drive competition. That's not that's a it's a big selling point to have this much more focused experience, I think. So it's it's going to open the market up to a lot more people. Yeah, and I'm just I I'm just thinking I my last blog about the C8 uh, was me advancing a theory that the base model C8 would have to at least compete on a track with the NSX in order to be perceived as quote unquote worth it by people who kind of watch you know Corvette racing. I mean. It, it just seemed to me like that would be the reasonable comparison. If for no other reason, then yes, Acura is a Japanese brand, quote unquote. That whole entire car, the NSX, is built right in Ohio. And mm. every every car-related thing in Ohio brags about that. I mean, mid-Ohio is where they tested it. It's this, it's that, the factory. And um, you know, just based off of these original impressions, not only does the Corvette seem in line to make that completely false and made up a benchmark that I set for no reason. But um, it also seems like they built, GM built this Corvette in the exact same way that Acura built the NSX. It's just that, you know, with the hybrid technology, that NSX is always going to be $100,000 more. And it's the only mid-engine car, even within striking distance price-wise. I mean, other ones are three or four times more than 60000 So it's just, I mean... If it works and if the performance numbers are there, I can't see this being anything other than it seems like a it seems like a home run, like a like a total coup for, for GM. Smash. Yeah. yeah. No, they I think they've done everything right. And that's obviously we still don't know the full specs or anything like that. But everything that I saw yesterday and the you know, the rea- the general reactions of people as well online 
it's been overwhelmingly positive. You know, people have criticisms, but it's not saying, well, this is a waste of time. This isn't going to sell. You could say yeah. it, does, it doesn't matter. You know, the NSX can be a great car and, you know, the greatest car ever. Or like, I think like the, the newer Ford GT. These are, you know, these are in theory competitors that are so much more expensive mm-hmm. and completely you know, unobtainable for most people. They know you can't even imagine owning one of those cars, most people. Whereas right. say you can look, you can look at this Corvette and go, well, in, you know, five, eight years time, I could see myself in one of those. That's much more attainable. And for people that are actually just buying the cars, you know, buying new cars, a $60,000 mid-engine sports car, that's a strong sell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I, $60,000 sports car is a strong sell. Yeah. Much less exactly. a mid-engine. So I, they've, they, they have done everything right so far. And I, I think it's going to sell really, really well because it's just, like I say, it's opened that market up to much more people. And you know, the, the stuff like the NSX or the Ford GT or other mid-engine cars, you know, most of them are bleeding-edge technological showcases of what can be done in various ways. And a lot of those, not that interesting to the people that buy them. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Corvette is just like, here's a fast car. We put the engine in the middle, well-balanced. Enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> that's what that's what people that's what i think you know enthusiasts want and at a price that they can afford so i say i think it's going to sell really well and every nearly everything i've seen has been pretty positive apart from you know people that would never buy one anyway so right of course so so nick i assume that completely changed your mind now you're fully on board um i i agree with pretty much everything you guys are saying about the fact that it's going to sell and the fact that it's going to like at that price point, if that's what the price point is going to be, it is going to be a coup or like I had mentioned, like a paradigm shift in how this all works, but man, and it would low if they mentioned I had a history, like my dad has had Corvettes since before I was born. So, um, there's been a 63 split window in my garage. There's been an 86 C4. There's been a 97 C5. My dad actually had a 69 stingray, that he sold when my mom was pregnant with me, that he bought not just the same model, but the exact same VIN, like the same car back as a retirement <laughs> present for himself. Um, so we've always had Corvettes in the family. And so it, I, I'm just saying, call it something else. You know, you can, you can have it, you can have a mid engine car like this from GM that just takes the market by storm, but bring the firebird name back anything you know call it something else <laughs> anything <laughs> it just feels so bad for you man <laughs> my fandom ended at 10 p.m central last night <laughs> well listen i will take that corvette flag and hang it up in my house because i'm gonna buy one of those someday uh i you mean can have it you can have it all right Loaf, I, I think we've taken up enough of your time i really cannot thank you enough for coming on with us this has been incredible I'm glad. I'm glad to be. Here. I hope it all, you know, it all went well, and I didn't uh, go on too many long rambles about, you know, <laughs> inconsequential things. No, no, no. no. It's all consequential because we've learned <laughs> pretty much every time you opened your mouth, and I think our listeners did too. So my question is this: Can we have you back again? Because this was awesome. Yeah, um, you know, more than happy to come back on. It's it's cool to talk to you guys, and I say I, one of those things, I've been planning on doing my own podcast for uh, quite a while. But I've decided it's much easier just to be guests on other people's because <laughs> I just it's uh, yeah it's 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 a lot. I think people that listen to podcasts don't necessarily realize the amount of work and effort that can go into them sometimes. Just like 
even just getting the scheduling right can be uh, a laborious oh, task. Yeah, so, well, like how long it took to how long it took to get this episode together. It's uh, it's there. Uh, it's it's a lot harder than people realize. And to say I've decided that my 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 way of doing this is let other people do the hard work, and I'll just talk. That's well, <laughs> if, 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 if you're not going to do a podcast, um, if our listeners want to get more of your insight, more of your wisdom, where can they go find you? Uh, just go go to my Twitter, Artisan Loaf, and that's about it. I'm I mean, one of the few people that do podcasts that don't have anything to sell people, and I like to keep it that way because I'm just me <laughs> giving my opinions. I'm not trying to sell you anything. I don't have a Patreon that you should you know <laughs> you should subscribe to or anything like that. Just you know, if you say if you like what I've had to say, then check me out on Twitter at Artisan Loaf, and that's that's all I want. That's it. Perfect. Perfect. Um, we're, we're gonna we're gonna save our round of thank yous because really the only thank you here is obviously to Artisan Loaf for taking time out his out of his vacation uh, to join us. Um, like Andrew said, we we appreciate this so much. Um, this is so cool for us, and I'm sure for our listeners as well. Um, if you like this and you want to let us know how much you enjoyed this, um, get at us, reach out to us. Um, you can start by doing that at CheckEnginePodcast.com. We have an email there inbox at checkenginepodcast.com um you can also find us on all the socials we're on facebook at check engine podcast uh andrew on twitter as well correct yeah at check engine pod and tristan the instagram is what also at check engine pod so I mean, please it, hit us up on there um, yeah you can follow our twitter it's mostly just artisan loaf retweets so yeah <laughs> you follow <laughs> him, just follow him. <laughs> yep. just follow him just skip us just skip the middleman um he is at Artisan Loaf. Um, right. If you're really, really, really into what we're doing, unlike Artisan Loaf, we actually do have a Patreon page. We will take your money. Uh, <laughs> so um, patreon.com slash podcast, or we also have a support button right on our Anchor FM page. Um, anything that goes in there comes out with what we hope is better content for you, the listener. Um, also, if you have a second, click that subscribe button. That way, uh, it's free, and all that happens is that you'll know when we have something new coming out. Um, if you like us, it's kind of a no-brainer. Um, and if you want to take a second to leave us a, a review, we would really appreciate that as well, because in the whole algorithm of podcast searches, our value goes up if we get good reviews. So um, we thank you for that. We thank you for listening all the way through, even though you can tell we're not pros. Um, one last time, thank you, Artisan Loaf. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. We cannot wait to talk to you again. Take care.